The Mind Itself is a podcast about mental health, mental health law, and how they affect all aspects of our daily lives. By taking a deeper dive into how our society deals with mental health medically, legally, and practically, listeners gain insight and information about one of America's most pressing and often overlooked issues that affects almost half of all adults in the United States. Welcome to the Mind Itself Podcast. This is John Whitbeck, your host. I'm here today with you and a very special guest, Jim LeGraff, who is the Executive Director of the Rappahannock Rapid and Community Services Board. For those of you that don't know and may not be listening in Virginia, we have community services boards all around uh, the Commonwealth that administer mental health services, among other many things they do. They're on the front lines of our with our first responders, our law enforcement, and what they do is extremely important for juveniles and adults alike. So, Jim, it's great to have you here. Thank you for being here. Glad to be here. Thanks, John. Now, I'm looking at your background for a second. I always like to start with a little bit about our guests, what they've done, because there's so many interesting stories. Tell me about being executive director of the Rappahannock Rapid and CSB and, and what you've done in your career. Sure. Well, I've been in this role now almost three years. I'm not a Virginian. I've transplanted down here. I'm born and raised in upstate New York, um, where I- Which is why you're wearing a uh, orange tie. Orange tie day after the NCAA Sweet 16 tournament, of course. That's right. And uh, all the Mountaineer uh, fans out there listening, please don't be angry that uh, that Syracuse beat you in the, in the tournament. But uh, Yes, I appreciate that. You know, <laughs> I was laughing Friday. I was wearing a big hoodie, and I've never worn a hoodie to work here. But I had my big Syracuse hoodie on, so- yeah, so I've been um, really doing this work for the better part of 20, well, almost 30 years now, in a variety of roles supporting adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities, behavioral health disabilities, in a variety of capacities before coming here. Most recently, I was worked for a large nonprofit in central Pennsylvania called Keystone Human Services, where I was the executive director of intellectual and developmental disabilities. Um, which was a very large organization. We were throughout most of Pennsylvania into the state of Delaware at one point in time in the District of Columbia. At different points in times, while doing that role, I also served as the executive director. They had a, a subsidiary autism organization, and I served in that role as well. But really, I, I think getting my start in this field was the idea of community health and being a, a community organization. And really just when I you know, heard about the role down here, the appeal of being attached to a community where I think really a lot of this work gets done was just real appealing. So made the move down here about three years ago. Well, and it is a great community. It's part of the rural part of Virginia, kind of the Shenandoah Valley, central Virginia uh, rural areas, right? Yes, absolutely. We are Culpeper, Fauquier, Madison, Orange, and Culpeper counties. So you, know, you have Fauquier County, which is a little more suburban in nature does have some of that Northern Virginia feel to it, especially the Northern parts of the county. And then, you know, lots of parts of Madison and Orange and Rappahannock counties are, are very in nature. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful area. No question. So in rural healthcare is a really important issue that Virginia's faced for a long time. So you also, you had some background in autism, I think you said before. Yeah, you came I, I, I do. It's interesting, you know, working in this field for a long time, you know, you start working with um, adults who have an autism diagnosis. Coincidentally, when my son was 11 years old, he was diagnosed with an autism diagnosis. So right. a lot of, you know, what I do and, you know, really took on a much more personal feel. You know, he's an adult now, he's 28. So, but, you know, I, I do think it gives me maybe a little different perspective on some of the issues that we deal with and work with. Right. 
Well, one of the things that that I have been celebrating on not both on the show and in my law practice is this Marcus Alert. This new bill that was signed into law in Virginia, November of 2020. I understand you've had some pretty significant involvement in the development of that. Is that right? Yes. Um, when the legislation was signed off by the governor last November, part of the legislation asked for one community service board in each of the five health planning regions across Virginia to act as an an early implementer of the Marcus Alert legislation. And with the Marcus Alert legislation, really what we're looking at is how do we help law enforcement respond to behavioral health calls in our community in a manner that has much better outcomes for the people that we're here to serve. You know, if we think about behavioral health and especially mental illness, mental illness is really the only illness that we don't treat as an illness, right? We treat a lot of it through law enforcement, especially when an individual is in, is in a crisis. So the the basic framework and the legislation really is named after Marcus Peters, um, a gentleman in the Richmond area, a biology teacher, if I'm not mistaken, who was having a, a mental health crisis. And when law enforcement responded, he was unfortunately tragically killed. And so it really served as a wake-up call for um, some advocates in this area to start looking in Virginia, how can we do this better? And we've had in our area, I think, very positive relationships with our, our law enforcement agencies and really took this as an opportunity to say in our five-county area, how can we do a better job? And um I think, you know, as we've looked at some of those those factors, you know, I think we think of behavioral health as the primary driver of the Marcus Alert. Um, there is still within Marcus Alert a uh, special attention as well as to, to other marginalized communi- um, communities, uh, adults with intellectual developmental disabilities, adults with autism, homelessness, individuals with traumatic brain injury as well. So it's all kind of that group of individuals in our society who might have a behavioral health crisis. And how can we get behavioral health professionals into that point of contact with that person with the idea of having much better outcomes for them? Right. So the official title of the law is the Mental Health Awareness Response and Community Understanding Services Alert System, which uh, is now aptly named Marcus Alert. And from what I understand, the, the law requires the Department of Criminal Justice Services and Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services to develop this Marcus Alert system by July 1 of this year. Is that right? Well, what's required by July 1st of this year is there is a state advisory committee that has been made up of volunteers across the state, advocates, law enforcement. So what is due by July 1st of this year is that stakeholder group has to give a report to the General Assembly with the guidelines that they want to see in place. As far as the implementation of the protocols and the other services that are tied to the Marcus uh, legislation, the five community service boards across Virginia that were chosen to early implement the program, their plans have to be in place and operational by December 1st of this year. So as one of the five selected CSBs implementation. I assume that you could sort of talk us through how exactly, well, and and, and not not exactly because it's probably still in development, but can you walk us through 
how the Marcus Alert system would work from the beginning of a crisis situation all the way until it concludes? I can try because <laughs> I think a lot of it right now really is in that implementation. And I will be very honest, um, as we have started our local conversations, I think one of the real strengths of this legislation is for the first time, maybe we have very diverse stakeholders actually in the room together discussing the challenges each of us are facing. So the the legislation at its front end allows some latitude within the local communities to determine what that crisis response will be. And there's a lot of different models nationally out there right now. There is a model called the CAHOOTS, which I believe is Portland or Seattle. I always get those two confused, um, which is a behavioral health co-response model where you actually have a clinician who is riding along with law enforcement. When a behavioral health call comes in, they're tagged in their 911 system, so to speak, to say, this is behavioral health in nature. This is their unit that should be responding to those events. In Harris County, which is the Houston area of Texas, they have a model that also is nationally kind of recognized as being um, a really good practice. And that place, you have a, a, it's not necessarily an embedded, but more of a co-response model, where if there is a behavioral health call, a behavioral health clinician can be dispatched or meet law enforcement at the scene. And again, in those two situations, you're getting the behavioral health person at that scene to diffuse the situation. So there isn't necessarily part of the Marcus legislation that says you must do this model, you must do that model. It is a um, develop what works in your community the best. And, you know, honestly, about three or four, about four months ago now, we had a local situation where I received a phone call from one of my, my county sheriffs who called me and said, you know, we were responding last night to a wellness check, which I know all of our local law enforcement jurisdictions do on a fairly regular basis. And for someone who was reported to be suicidal, he saw the police car, ran into the house and unfortunately took his life. And it really affected his, the the deputies and the sheriff in this, in this area. And he called me and said, you know, what can we do? We need to do something better. And so we actually were able to go out several months ago and work with a couple of local foundations and receive some private funding to pilot internally, locally, our own embedded response program. So right now in Fauquier County, we actually have a behavioral health clinician. This And this is kind of outside the Marcus Alert system, but I think given us a lot of insight into what potentially could work, where we've been able to receive some funding to have a, a clinician sit in the sheriff's office. When a call comes in, the dispatcher will target or tag it as a behavioral health call and our staff is now meeting law enforcement at the scene. And we're working with the town of Warrenton Police Department as well as the sheriff's office so we can share that one resource. Again, it's a really small sample, but really, I think, showing and demonstrating to law enforcement and to our staff that having a behavioral health response um, is really very, very effective in, in helping to get resources out into the community, diffusing situations. And from a community service board perspective, getting us insight into people we might not know about in the community. 
which is, again, one of the other real challenges that we face. So just so everyone's clear, this is not an opportunity for a law putting, being put in place. Strike that. Let me, let me ask a different way. Just so we're clear, the behavioral health professional that's on call or as part of this Marcus Alert System doesn't have the ability to overrule police officers doing their job. Is that right? Correct. Okay. They're there to supplement and assist police officers in identifying people who are in mental health crisis and are not criminals necessarily, correct? Correct. And I also think it's very important for the listeners to also understand there are concurrent tracks that are um, happening at the same time. So while the Marcus Alert right now is very focused, the behavioral health response to a crisis that is currently happening in the community, the Department of Behavioral Health is also working on expansion of other support services that will wrap around and help support the Marcus Alert program. Um, For example, um, right now, one of the things that is um, in development are regional crisis call centers, which goes a little bit to your question about who takes the lead, because that's always been one of the real challenges. If there's a call comes to 911, who takes the lead on the call? And as part of the crisis call centers, what the Um, anticipation is that some of these calls are able to be transferred to an an online trained behavioral health professional who will be able to screen that call. And there's different um, standard screenings that are out there that will be made available to make a determination of, is this person at a crisis level such that law enforcement needs to be a first responder, needs to control and make the situation safe? Is this a 911 call that typically we might send law enforcement because there's no other system in place right now not to send law enforcement. But the person is not a danger to themselves or others. But if someone doesn't intervene soon, they may escalate to a point, in which case we might be able to send out a mobile therapist who could go, the situation is safe. Or is this just a family that might be just frankly really frustrated and maybe an online or a virtual or a telephone call to appear or something like that can diffuse the situation. Or the family just might need resources that a case may. So there is a whole continuum that is potentially being built. And all of that, these things are happening concurrently down the line right now. Biggest problem, I mean, I used to be a special justice in Virginia. And a lot of the issues that I saw had more to do with lack of funding and lack of beds than anything else. I mean, the, the, especially on the folks that I would see repeatedly going through, because, you know, in Virginia, our commitment process is sort of an emergency. We don't treat the lowest levels of mental illness. We don't treat the middle levels. We don't even treat some of the serious, but less serious levels. We really only focus on when it's really bad. And that's always been the weakness in the system. And I'm hearing a lot of, this is an amazing, incredible resource. All of you should be commended for this incredible movement towards taking the mentally ill out of the criminal system as much as possible and treating them and not incarcerating them or prosecuting them. But where's the money going to come from? I'm hoping that this law has some, it's getting you the resources you need to implement this, right? It is getting us some of the resources we need. One Which would be these. consistent with my experience with most <laughs> Virginia mental health. It's some, well, some of what we need. You know, I, I think it's no mystery. You know, Virginia's per capita spending on mental health and behavioral health services is in the bottom third of the country. Right. And I think that is a significant challenge for us. You made 
um, a, a mention of the lack of, of beds. And it's not necessarily, in my opinion, the lack of beds, but where the lack of beds are. We still have large state hospitals. And what we don't have and what Virginia, and I would agree with you completely, where Virginia, in my observation since I've been here, is really shorted itself is local stabilization beds, hospitals with acute behavioral health beds. In our five counties, we have two community hospitals, but in neither of our two hospitals is there a single bed to help an individual who's in a a short-term crisis situation, you know. So I I do believe that has been one of the real significant challenges for our community anyways, is that if there is, even if it's a very short-term crisis, people have to leave our area, which creates just a, a a slew of other challenges about returning home, being moved out of the area, away from friends and supports and all those other types of things. Right. Um, what the Marcus does provide for each community service board who early implements the program is about $600,000 a year. So how we use that $600,000 has not been determined yet. I think it's really up to our local implementation team to figure out what can be the most effective use of those funds, whether it is an expansion of mobile crisis teams, whether it is behavioral health professionals who are spread out over the five-county region so that they can respond in a prompt manner, because that becomes one of our other real challenges. If we have somebody in rural Madison County who is in a crisis and 911 is called, but our behavioral health professional is in Warrington, no one's going to wait the hour for them to drive that distance. And so how do we use those funds to give the best coverage across the best area and, and get people in a timely manner is going to be part of the real challenge. Now, I've always been struck by you know, Virginia's mental health legislation the last 10, 15 years has always been reactionary. We've had a series of tragic situations, Virginia Tech, Senator Deeds, all these inc- incidents that have occurred, Marcus, Peters. Out of it comes real tangible change, but it's always after something terrible happens. Hopefully, this will be the start of a movement towards proactive establishment of these types of resources for our communities. Now, I know you're you're in a different part of Virginia than than where most of the population is, obviously, in in the Rappahannock, Rapidan area. How much more difficult is it for, say, let's say we were in Hampton Roads or Richmond or Northern Virginia? I guess the way I'm thinking about this, it's probably just implementing on, on a larger scale and it costs more. But what are, what are some of the challenges that a rural establishment of a Marcus Alert system versus a, uh, you know, in a more urban area? Compare and contrast for me how different areas of Virginia would really go about doing this. That's a tough question. Uh, but I, I think one of the things that I have observed is if we're in some of the more populous areas, you know, and if, if we even use like Fairfax, which is close to us and uh, maybe one I'm a little bit more familiar with, you know, you made mention early on about community service boards, and there are 40 of us across Virginia, but we're all structured a little differently, which I think makes um, the implementation of a program like this a real challenge. And typically what I, I have observed, and I think bears out across the state, is our more populous areas, our community service boards are actually parts of local government. So Fairfax Community Service Board is a part of Fairfax government, which gives them kind of an advantage because you're working with Fairfax Dispatch. 
you know, is another department down the hall, the Department of Social Services. And as a, a singular governmental entity, so to speak, I think you have issues of communication, staff sharing, some of those types of things become a little bit easier. And to understand how if we invest in a community support service that can divert people from law enforcement, potentially we can use some of the savings from law enforcement or incarceration to help fund that program. In our five county areas, we have five different sheriff offices. We have four different town police. So we have nine different law enforcement entities and five different governments, as well as several town governments. And I think trying to break down those barriers, um, we actually met today as our local implementation team. And we're just starting to talk about some basic type of questions on sharing of resources and looking at how we can share information. And we have different systems and, you know, just different databases and um, access records that are not shareable across counties. So I think it creates a whole other set of issues as well as because, you know, our population in some of these counties is really small. Rappahannock County has a population of 7,200 people in the entire county. The economic impact, and it's a large geographic county, to be able to provide timely services in some of those more remote areas becomes a a really very significant challenge. So where we want to take advantage, our population bases, lending out staff resources to our smaller counties so that we can have a timely response to help somebody. But systems, 911 systems don't talk to each other. So how do we get that message to get to that person? And how do we locate those person in our community so that they're not two hours away or an hour and a half away, you know, because a crisis needs a more immediate response than that. So I, I think we have a lot of those which are really significant challenges. I also think, you know, understanding the culture of the conservative nature of our five counties is important and how the historical build out of community behavioral health services has been accomplished over the years in, in our more rural counties like ours really is, is real important. And, you know, it's individuals in our communities aren't necessarily as used to having all the services that our more populous counties have, because on a per capita basis, they're real expensive to run. You get the nail on the head with that. And I also think it's really interesting what you said, you know, that the, the community services boards don't function similarly everywhere. That's really interesting. I, I, I didn't know that, first of all, I didn't know there were only 40 of them. I thought that this was a, every, uh, you know, locality in, or at least um, groups of localities had one. So that would mean a lot more than 40. And what, number two, it, it's really interesting that they're different everywhere. And, you know, in my home county of Loudoun, I've always, the, the community service support is part of the government there too. So it's always been right. just really simple. And, you know, if I got to go to family assessment planning team meeting, or everything. I'm going to the government center and it's all part of the same, same thing. You know, uh, I, I ran a pro bono mental health clinic, the George Mason law and mental illness clinic for years. And we did, we, my students and I would litigate pro bono, the commitment hearings. And for years and years and years, Fairfax has had what they call the mobile crisis unit, which we would call Woodburn because it was from the Woodburn mental health center. So it was kind of the original Marcus alert system, if you will, 
but it wasn't really coordinating with law enforcement as much as probably this new system that, that, that's being put in place would, would actually do so. What's been the reception that you've seen from law enforcement agencies? Are they happy this is happening? Do they think it's burdensome? What's, what's been sort of the, the culture of this among your, your soon-to-be partners in law enforcement? I, I think yes to all of those questions. Depends on the agency, right? Depends on the agency and the location, right? It, it, it absolutely does. Now, I'm, I'm really happy when I started, when the Marcus legislation came out and the, the call for requests for CSBs to early implement the program came out, I started making calls. And I, I do believe we have really good relationships with all of our sheriffs and, and town chiefs and started talking to them about our desire and thinking this was, was very positive for our community. By the time this had also come out, we had already started our little pilot program in, in Fauquier and Culpeper County with the town of Culpeper that was funded privately by a, a local foundation. So we already had some traction, I think, to get law enforcement on board. I think it's interesting with our rural counties, not that I think the impact is any greater in a rural county to these types of, of issues as they are in the more populous counties. We work so closely with our boards of supervisors and our our sheriff's office that when the system breaks because we're so small and someone doesn't get the needs that they need met or law enforcement is really struggling with an an individual case, I think we hear about it much more quickly. And, you know, so we've been having these discussions quite a bit of law enforcement's frustration and the time and, and the budget impact that behavioral health calls are having on their budgets. If they're spending hours transporting someone to a state hospital as far away as Bristol, you know, that creates huge impacts, especially on some of my more rural counties where you might have two sheriff deputies on shift for, you know, one shift. So if you have two deputies who have to transport someone four hours away, four hours back, you're, re- you're removing their entire shift from the community. So we've been having lots of those conversations the last couple of years. So I think they were open and willing to have in this discussion and became very supportive. Additionally, I do have a couple departments that are very um, proactive in looking at the behavioral health needs. And I mentioned, you know, we are working a little bit with the sheriff in Fauquier County, Bob Mosier, Sheriff Mosier. I think Bob has at the beginning, in the two, almost three years that I've been here, been, what can we do? We are not behavioral health professionals. We get a little behavioral health training, but we get a week of behavioral health training. Your staff get five years of it, typically. So you you know more about this. He has been great. Uh, Chief Jenkins, who is the chief of the town of police in Culpeper, has been, again, a very vocal supporter of behavioral health services in our community and making sure that you know his his men are trained in crisis intervention training um, and some of those types of things. So I, th- I think it made it a little easier in the fact that you know we do have leaders in law enforcement locally who really understand this stuff. And uh, while they're looking at it from behavioral health from the community crisis perspective, um, I also think we've had lots of discussion about behavioral health within law enforcement because that you know as we all know is, is a real concern right now as well. So. I think there's an understanding and acceptance that might not necessarily go hand in hand with some of our conservative 
rural area, um, but really understand the situation and, and want to make it better. No, and that's been my experience. I mean, law enforcement, I, mean, I think Virginia's pretty lucky. We just have so many great elected sheriffs and police chiefs that have made this a priority for many, many years. And uh, you see it all over Virginia and it's never enough, but it's a start. Let me just wrap up with this, Jim. And, th- and this is a sort of a fun thing I like to do in, in this podcast is sort of, you know, if you could wave a magic wand and any changes to the mental health system you, you could see implemented, what would it be? And, uh, or change the criminal justice system, what, what not depending upon the guest. Being that you're in mental health policy, that's what you do. What are some of the things that if you could have your druthers, this is what you would change about our system and, and fix about our system? I think the challenge, if, my magic wand would be, we need to basically flip the Virginia behavioral health system. It is, is, I think you mentioned it real early, it is much more weighted on an end of state hospitalization, response to crisis. We spend a fortune at the state level on our state hospital system, our crisis. If we had those funds at the front end of the system, you know, um, crisis teams, better therapists at the local level, better funding for community services, I think we could stop all of those back-end crises from happening. So, but how, you know, this is always the challenge all of us have had is now we have this back-end system and you have people who are in that that point. And in order to be safe, we have to have those programs and plans in place. So how do you get from that back-end to a front-end system? Because to manage both at the same time is, is just, you know, economically incredibly burdensome. So- that would be my, my one wish. My, my second wish, I think, would absolutely be, you know, we hear this over and over. The main reason people don't get the help they need is the stigma of a mental illness or yes. a different type of disability. And if we could help people to understand that, you know, a mental illness is not a personal failing or even, you know, any other type of disability, we all have good days. We all have bad days. Some days, some people are just better or worse than others. You know, if we could break down the stigma to encourage people to seek help early on, I guess that would be my biggest wish is, you know, helping communities get over that, the stigma that someone has a mental illness, they, they just aren't trying hard enough, or it was something in their upbringing because it, it knows no economic boundaries. It knows, it knows no educational boundaries. Couldn't agree more. So, Jim, this has been amazing. Thank you so much. Our communities now, hopefully, if this all goes as planned, we'll we'll be living in a in a state where you don't just have automatic law enforcement response to crisis situations. You have law enforcement and mental health professional response to crisis situation. And I think Virginia is going to be a lot better off thanks to Delegate Bourne and the other co-sponsors and then the sponsors on the Senate side that made this happen. And this is a political free zone here on the Mind Itself podcast. But I will tell you, this is one of those pieces of legislation that transcends all partisanship, transcends everything about the harsh world of politics. And it's an incredible thing that they've done in the General Assembly, an incredible thing that you're going to be able to do for your community and, and hopefully help areas that are not participating as the five CSBs implement their Marcus Alert system in their localities. So 
Jim, thank you for being here. Hope to have you on again soon. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Take care. The Mind Itself podcast is unique in that we look at the intersection between mental health and the law and how it impacts you. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to leave a comment, rate, and review and share with someone you know. Thanks for listening.